You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, our main discussion is of the principle from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. This is the first of two episodes where that's the main topic. Before we do that, we're going to have a current events segment with Andrew Clark of Marxist Humanist Initiative and myself talking about Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity or to read more about the issues discussed, to join in in dialogue with us, and to make a donation to the podcast series, you can do all of that on our website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. While the podcast series is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by me and by others on the podcast are our own. They do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative itself. Hi, I'm Andrew Kleiman. With me right now is Andrew Clark, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Later in this episode, Brendan Cooney and I will be talking about the principle from each according to his or her ability to each according to their needs in relationship to the appearance of that principle in Marxist critique of the Gotha program and a recent dissertation by Eduardo Bolando at State University of New York, Stony Brook. He wrote a, a dissertation in philosophy entirely about that principle. So that discussion span over two episodes, the first half in this episode. First in this episode, Anne and I will be talking about the new Speaker of the House, we're recording this on November 4, 2023. For a lot of people, this was unexpected that Mike Johnson would be Speaker of the House. I mean, a lot of people, including myself, had never heard of the guy. Uh, Were you surprised? Were you shocked? Well, I'd never heard of him either. But when I found out who he was, I was surprised and shocked because it seems he's even further to the right than Jim Jordan and everybody else in the House. So uh, you know that um, the first two people that the Republicans nominated couldn't get enough votes to win. And so one would think that they would nominate someone a little more centrist, but they didn't. They went all the way right. And it it's shocking because he is such a, a Christian nationalist. Well, he's like also an election subverter. I mean, a lot of the, the Republicans were like, oh, it wasn't a fair election, blah, blah, blah. Johnson's a lawyer, and he he played a really instrumental role in the Trump auto coup, because as a lawyer, uh, Johnson was able to argue among his fellow Republicans that the election was not held you know, in a legally proper manner, uh, he alleged falsely that what was done was unconstitutional because of COVID largely. Uh, there were election procedures 
put in place on an emergency basis that did not go through the state legislatures. And so he took this like theory that I think it was Eastman was 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 propagating, maybe others, that according to the Constitution, the only people who have the power to decide and conduct elections, uh, you know, if they want the, the people to vote, they can do it. But it's the state legislatures, nobody else, not the governor, not the administration of the state and so forth. So that played a pivotal role in the Trumpite conspiracy to steal the election. So he was election denier, like a lot of them were, which is not, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo that as nothing, but but he played even a more fundamental role in, in trying to steal the election. One almost wonders, if I were a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, I would wonder whether the whole election procedure in the House was a setup where they first put up these two raucous, obnoxious people uh, who yell all the time, Jim Jordan, only to pave the way for bringing in Johnson, who is smarter or whatever, more wily, and has this background of actually coming up with programs to get his way or their way. He's an odious character. He's voted for nationwide ban on abortions, introduced a bill that would forbid federal funding of sex education to children under 10 if LGBTQ topics are part of the curriculum. He is really closely tied with one of the leader, the one of the leaders of the creationist movement in the United States, Ken Ham. And Ham is behind this organization, and they've got the Creation Museum, and that's in Kentucky. And they've got this thing called the Ark Encounter Theme Park, also in Kentucky. Johnson has done legal work on behalf of the Ark Encounter. Yeah. And what he said in an interview where he was talking to Ham is, this was in 2021, not, not so long ago, the Ark Encounter is one way to bring people to this recognition of the truth that what we read in the Bible are actual historical events. So when he was an attorney, before he was in Congress, when he was acting as an attorney, he helped the this uh, Ark Encounter rake in millions of dollars in state money, subsidies. The, the thing is, though, that when the Ark Encounter hires people, they do it on the basis of religion. So this is state subsidizing religion. And under normal times, that would be considered like unconstitutional. So so yeah, I mean, overall, it, it's even worse than particular acts or measures that, that Johnson's involved in. I mean, he's anti-LGBTQ, he's young earth, he's against same-sex marriage, you know, totally against abortion rights. But what ties this all together is that he's a Christian nationalist. You know, he very openly wants theocracy. He he said this is a Christian nation, this idea that we have a separation of church and state in the Constitution, that that is wrong. So he's one of the people peddling that, and he wants this to be a Christian nation, not only in terms of the beliefs of the majority of the population, but obviously in terms of legislation and kind of everything else. They, they asked him, you know, because nobody had heard of him. So he becomes speaker and they say, like, you know, so tell us about your beliefs. He says, read the Bible. Read the Bible. That's what I believe. You know, it's all he, in the Bible. Yeah, he believes in the 
literal uh, interpretation of the Bible. There's no analogies. There's no subtlety to it. It's all liter literally correct. And therefore, the earth has to be young. The ark carried dinosaurs on it. I don't think that's in the Bible, but his interpretation is there were dinosaurs. And the, the dinosaurs have to come from somewhere. Okay, and right. clearly the the you know the the Earth is not millions and millions and millions of years old, you know. So God's testing us, and there were dinosaurs there. He's um, anti-Semitic in the sense that he believes in the Book of Revelation that that's going to be fulfilled in modern day Israel. That Jesus is going to come back to Earth is what it's about. Yeah, Jesus is going to come back, and he's and, he's going to obliterate all the non-righteous people, including the Jews, as long yeah. as they, you know, if they don't convert. And and it's this anti-Semitism that's behind his pro-Israel stances. You know, it sounds like, uh, well, it's counterintuitive, okay, but the idea is that all these so-called Christian Zionists, they're like, yeah, we, we, the state of Israel, good, because this brings us closer and closer to the end of days. You got the, the, the Jews there, Jesus comes back. Back, you know, and he exacts punishment on everybody who doesn't believe in him, and, and everything is great for the rest of us. Right, and the punishment is slaughter. Yeah, why not? I mean, very right. biblical, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, irrespective of his personal beliefs, one might ask, how does this affect his job as speaker? Maybe people don't know what his job is. His job is to uh, or organize and prepare legislation that the Republicans want and bring it to the House floor for a vote. And anything that he doesn't bring to the House floor is dead um, before arrival. So it's a very, very powerful position. And he was handpicked by Donald Trump, who didn't like the earlier ones and specified that he should be the speaker. I actually think there were three people. So they they get rid of McCarthy. And then there was Scalise. And I think Scalise, like, OK, he didn't even come up for a vote. He withdrew, yeah. He withdrew. And then there was Jordan. And then there was Tom Emmer, who was considered more moderate than, than Jordan. And he didn't get through. And then all of a sudden, they come up with Johnson. And he's got power as the Speaker of the House. What's really frightening, though, is the potential power he could have as president. He's two bullets away from being president of the United States. If Biden can no longer serve as president, and Kamala Harris, the vice president, cannot take over for whatever reason, then God help us. You know, I mean, what, what can I say? Uh, we've been talking about so much about religion now, but God help us. This person, Mike Johnson, is then president of the United States. And he's a puppet for Trump, or unless he decides to be independent. No, no. I mean, he he might be worse than Trump because he's a, t a true, quote, believer, close quote, in the you know, one of the, the ideologies that fuels Trumpism and that, that Trump just kind of learns uh, catch as catch can by the seat of his pants and doesn't believe it at all. But, uh, you know, one wonders what Johnson actually believes, too, because he doesn't think twice about lying. 
His first act of legislation was this bill to do this uh, $14 billion emergency funding for, for Israel. And he said, well, you know, we, we this is about fiscal responsibility. We have to tie this $14 billion in aid to Israel with $14 billion being pulled back from IRS enforcement, you know, Internal Revenue Service, the, the tax authorities in the United States. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats have recently beefed that up to basically – uh, have more people uh, that can answer phones to help people trying to do their taxes and to do more auditing of tax cheats, especially very, very well-to-do ch- tax cheats. So Johnson was pretending that, you know, he wanted to like save the government $14 billion by cutting this IRS funding. The thing is, IRS agents that do audits they bring in more money than, than their, their salaries, et cetera, et cetera. So the Congressional Budget Office, you know, says, no, no, John, Johnson's wrong. You know, by by slashing this money, you're going to add to the federal deficit, OK, because you're going to save 14 on salaries and such. But you're going to lose about twenty seven billion dollars in revenue that you're not getting because you're not doing the audits. OK, you know, and everybody knows this and Johnson knew it. And so he just lied through his teeth. This this is this, you know, righteous Christian. So, like, you know, what I want to know is, like, first of all, who would Jesus audit? And, and secondly, um, if this guy's willing to lie about, you know, something so obvious that, like, getting tax cheats brings in more revenue than it costs. Maybe he's lying about the dinosaurs on the ark. Maybe he's lying about the, uh, you know, the age of uh, the earth. Maybe he's lying about, you know, Jesus Christ being God and the, the rest of it. So it's like, you know, what can you believe from uh, these, these people? Okay. The, the whole thing well, might be some total lie. I'm not prepared to accept that he believes anything other than power. But the immediate danger, well, it's dangerous for all legislation because it has to go through him. But the immediate uh, danger is funding for Ukraine. He's opposed to funding for Ukraine. And, you know, the Democrats had put up the aid for Ukraine in the same bill with the aid for Israel, and they were supposed to pass together. That was some kind of deal that had been made. And then the Republicans pulled out they for the aid for Israel, but not for the aid for Ukraine. And if the U.S. stops funding aid for Ukraine, that's going to be the end of Ukraine. I can't see that the Europeans can make it all up. No, and, and it's it's not like a done deal dead. Basically, what the House has done is considered dead on arrival in the Senate, and the Senate's going to do its thing, and then it, it, it has to go back to the House, and we, we don't know what's going to happen at that at that point. You know, people have speculated that in the end, the House, that is to say, Johnson's going to cave, but look, a lot of strange things happening these days, like... Mike Johnson becoming Speaker of the House, Donald Trump being president, Donald Trump running for president again, being the front runner after he has fomented insurrection and tried to steal the election. A lot of strange things happening. So I'm not going to make any predictions. One thing I'm reading in the press is that Democrats are happy that Johnson's the new face of congressional Republicans 
because they'll think that they think they'll be able to use his extremism to hammer home the point that this extremism now pervades the whole GOP. And this paper says maybe they're right, but similar thinking that their opponent's extremism would accrue to their benefit failed to pan out in 2016 with devastating consequences. That's what we got to worry about most of all. God knows, you know, what people are paying attention to these days, what's in their, you know, social media feeds where they they, they get information. It's, you know, all, all of like the political scientists and other social science experts in the U.S. and around the world, they're tearing their hair out. You know, this is an emergency situation. Democracy Democracy in the U.S. is like hanging by a thread, and that affects the whole world. It's like at least that kind of discourse hasn't caught on in the United States. Now, on the other hand, you know, the election a year ago, the the midterm elections, you know, you didn't hear voters talking a lot about democracy, but the anticipated red wave, you know, huge Republican victory never panned out because of mobilization against the ending of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, Roe v. Wade on abortion. And what voters, you know, kind of like swing voters said was the extremism of a lot of Republican candidates. You know, they they voted for the Democrats and, and that headed off the red wave. So people don't necessarily speak the same language of liberal democracy as as the political science experts and so forth. I don't know. I mean, it is still to be determined, I think. Given that the Republicans nixed Jordan and Given that, like, what's more acceptable to probably most people in the country is even more moderate people, I guess, you know, maybe you could consider Scalise or Emmer more moderate, okay? Why in the hell have the Republicans gone for probably somebody who's more extreme even than Jim Jordan, given that, you know, it it does open them up to these Democrats saying, look at what the whole Republican Party is about these days. It's this extremism. Why would the Republican Party, a dozen Republicans who are in the House of Representatives who are in majority Democrat districts, you know, and they're like political careers are on the line. Why would these people go for go for Johnson? Well, the only apparent answer is that because Trump ordered them to, and Trump is not the best political strategist in the world, to put it mildly. He was in the right place in the, at the right time or the wrong place. If he's become so nutsy that he thinks anyone who's in power anywhere must imitate him and quote him and hold those same beliefs, Although I don't think Trump is a uh, creationist and all that. They're also going after the evangelical vote. But how many people, when they go to vote for president, even know who the speaker is? But I suppose they've got now a a year to talk it up. Yeah, I I think what Trump had on his plate is I need a staunch, not only election denier, I need a staunch stooge who will do my bidding to overthrow the next election or whatever it might be, you know, and Johnson's got a proven track record uh, of that. I think that's what Trump is mostly concerned with at this point. Clearly not religion, maybe not what goes on in the House, apart from how it personally affects Donald Trump. Here's what Matt Gates said. He's another like part of the crazy Trumpite 
wing of crazy Trumpites. He says, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, then you're not paying attention. I, th- I think he, he got it right. Even the so-called more moderate Republicans and even the ones who are in you know majority Democrat districts, they realize that they have no political future unless they do Donald Trump's bidding because he has a lock on the base of the Republican Party. You know, it's very clear from the polls. So they to have any political future at all, they, they got to like, oh, well, I got to worry about, you know, next November running against the Democrat. But even to get the chance of running against the Democrat, I got to do things the way Donald Trump wants, because otherwise there's going to be retribution from his base. That might just be them voting me out of office. That might be threatening my wife, my kids, myself, etc., etc. I think that these people basically are resigned to just being yes men and women for, for Trump, that that's their political role. That's what That's what's left for them. Well, it's a sad and dangerous day, and that's what we have to deal with. And the one, the one silver lining is that when the spotlight shone last year on the extremism of some of these people, among which was uh, Doug Mastriano running for, I think, governor. Yeah, in, in in Pennsylvania, who was another Christian nationalist, they got thumped. And Mastriano in particular got thumped. So, you know, that that's not going to be the case for Johnson personally, that he's going to get thumped. But I think it will be hard for the Republicans to justify their voting for this guy, the, the things coming out of his mouth. I, I, I think it probably will scare enough voters that it's going to matter and, you know, have, have, have some actual effect in the election. In just a moment, you're going to hear again from Andrew Clard with a statement about who we are. And immediately after the conclusion of that statement talking about the organization, we're going to move immediately into the main discussion of today's episode, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements driving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Today is October 27th, and we're going to be talking about the famous principle often cited in relation to Marx that says, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Marx uses this line in the critique of the Gotha program, which we have discussed before in the podcast, but we're going to do sort of a deep dive into various questions in regards to this principle. And we're also going to be referencing a PhD thesis by Eduardo Bolando from 2020, His thesis is called, From Each According to His Ability to Each According to His Needs, What It Could Possibly Mean and What Lies Behind This Marxian Principle. Uh, It is a good read. It gives a lot of context to the discussions of this this principle prior to Marx and in Marx. We actually invited Eduardo onto the podcast. He wasn't able to do it, but we're going to be talking about his paper often in this discussion as well. I mean, it's a full-scale dissertation. So I don't know, it runs about 120 pages or so. So, yeah. I mean, he, he, he kind of like talks about, you know, like every possible interpretation of the meaning and how it relates to distribution theory, you know, and moral philosophy before Marx and since Marx, 20th century people like John Rawls and, and so forth. Yeah. So it, it's a rather comprehensive discussion. We're not going to be doing all of that. Our main interest is, well, my main interest, let me say, is what does this mean in Marx? What, in the context of the critique of the Gotha program where he wrote it, what, what are the implications of the statement when looked at in terms of the surrounding context? Well, why don't we start with the origins of this principle? People often attribute this quote to Marx from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But as Bolando points out in his dissertation, there's a long history of the use of this principle long before Marx. What, what's, uh, where does this idea come from, Andrew? Oh, God. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting this mostly from Bolando's discussion. And he said that this kind of begins with the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, the, there's the phrase, to each according to his ability. In Romans, to each according to his works. That's not needs, that's works. Okay, but according to Bolando, what was written, you know, in the New Testament would influence 19th century French and German thinkers in formulating this. One of the people he talks about is Bebeuf, radical revolutionary in the French Revolution. And he was the person who kind of introduced the importance of 
satisfying needs and people receiving according to what they need, evidently the first major thinker to do so. That's kind of interesting. So, you know, that, that's only less than a century before uh, Marx uh, wrote the um, Critique of the Gothic Program. But already in the 1830s and 40s, you then had development and the followers of Saint-Simon uh, proclaimed, you know, on their uh, in their newspapers, uh, the masthead said, to each according to his capacities, to each capacity according to its work. And again, that still wasn't need. But then in 1844, August Becker, in a pamphlet, What Do the Communists Want?, he says, in communism, the principle applies from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. So 1844 was evidently the first expression of the principle, you know, as Marx repeated it. And then a few years later, it was repeated, 1849, it was repeated by Louis Blanc well before Marx, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. So he used it a lot, and he uh, the principle is often attributed to Louis Blanc, okay? But before that was Becker, and then following that was Marx. But I, I think one of the main things to get is it's not an exclusively Marxian principle. It was there, you know, in communist thought, in, in socialist thought. It has some precursors, but it really seems to be a product of the thought that was emerging in the, in the 1830s and, and 40s in France and Germany. I've even, so long ago, I can't remember who the author was, but I recall reading a book at one point that was arguing that Marx's use of this principle isn't even to be taken seriously. He was just sort of alluding to a slogan that was common in the socialist movement as a way to explain his own thinking, but he he doesn't really take the idea seriously. I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation. Right, right. I, it is useful, for I think, just for maybe realizing that there may be distance between how Marx is using the principle and the critique of the GOTA program and how other people are understanding the idea. Yeah. Just like we have a lot of nice sounding phrases in the left movements today, and we could give them more specific content that could go in a lot of different directions, depending on what your politics are or what your philosophy is. I actually think that that's one of the more important points that Marx is is getting at. I mean, so he's he's taking a principle, a slogan that the people he's writing to who were, you know, going to sign onto this unification of the two parties based on the Gotha program that Marx opposed, uh, they were ready to, you know, join with the Lasallians. Marx is opposed to this, he's opposed to the program, but but the people he's writing to are familiar with the principle. Presumably, you know, they adhere to it. And Marx is saying, okay, look, get real. If you really believe in that principle, then you have to, like, take on board what's needed to realize the principle. And here I'm going to explain to you is needed to make that not just an empty slogan, okay, principle that would be realized in reality and you know, may not be what they thought of at all. Marx takes everybody through a lesson, you know, in the materialist conception of history and the relationship between the economic foundation of society and the political and legal superstructure, including, you know, income distribution. There, there's the overall context of the, the Gotha program, 
the unification of the two parties on the basis of the program that Marx opposed, but then there's the context of his text itself. Okay, so it occurs in the text, you know, at a particular point, right? And it serves a particular role, okay? And it's kind of interesting, you know, that it kind of comes in there and it's one paragraph and it's kind of discontinuous with what's come before, but it kind of flows naturally in another sense. Basically, Marx is really ticked off that the Gotha program is talking about, you know, a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. And Marx is like, look, you know, these ideas of fairness, they're all empty unless you look at the economic structure of society and what is possible in that kind of society. You know, you want to talk about fair distribution. Well, you know, certain things are not possible under capitalism. So if you really care about this, if you want to get real, you have to talk about the need to change the economic content of the society, not just redistribute things. You can use words like fairness, but you're not going to get anything different unless you change the character of the society, the, the, the actual mode of production, in particular relations of production and, you know, the fact that like, well, under capitalism, like, you know, people don't have, workers don't have means of production of their own. They're forced to work for other people. Uh, they're forced to produce uh, value. They're forced to produce as much as possible because of, you know, the need to expand c capital, surplus value to the, the utmost. So Marx says, look, distribution that we got right now in capitalism is the only fair distribution given that we've got capitalism. And then what's possible when we move to socialism, when we move to, you know, he called it communism, when we move to a communist society, he says, well, you know, like initially what is going to be possible is a hell of a lot, but it's not going to be everything, you know, and he's anticipating what he hasn't said yet. It's not going to be from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Okay. What it will be is that People will no longer be exchanging products. There won't be any value, so their contribution won't be measured in terms of what its value is, you know, using value in the technical sense. The amount of products they produce isn't going to matter, okay? What people will be doing is contributing their labor. And, you know, so in the, the first phase of communist society, just as it's emerged from capitalism, people will contribute their labor and that will give them the right to products that cost an equal amount of labor. So in effect, there's going to be a distribution of labor for labor. Okay, Equal amounts of labor will be exchanged, not in the market, but one will give to society a certain amount of labor and society will give back to you an equal amount of labor after deduction for, you know, social needs, administration of government and, you know, insurance to, you know, in case there's like a natural disaster or something, all that kind of stuff. So there'll be a few deductions. Okay. But basically it's exchange of equal quantities of labor. And Marx is like, hey, this exchange of equal quantities of labor, uh, that's got a lot of problems. He doesn't quite come out and say what the problems are, but I think 
if you look at it in context, what he's saying is, you know, that's a certain standard of fairness, and that's the best that that kind of society can do, a communist society right after it emerges from capitalist society. But even that kind of society still has to tie what people receive to what they contribute. Why are you entitled to receive? Because that has been your contribution, okay? So basically what he's saying is freeloading, you know, it's not going to be something that is compatible with a society like that because if everybody is entitled to freeload, well, hell, why not freeload? And then everything would fall apart. So he says, okay, these kinds of defects where you don't get unless you give, these defects whereby you don't have an innate right to anything just because you're a human being, but you have to give to society in order to get back, that's a defect. And, you know, the fact that, like, some people are more able to do more work than other people, that's a defect because that means they would get more. And there's a defect because, well, if you got like one worker per household or two workers per household, it doesn't matter. And the households are of different sizes. Then what people get per person in the household is going to be bigger in small households and vice versa in large households. So he says there's all these kinds of defects. It's That's not a perfect society by any means when uh, communist society just emerges from capitalism. But he says, look, this is inevitable in that kind of society, okay, because right can never be higher than the economic structure of society. Or German term is recht. It could mean right. It could mean uh, fairness, justice, law, all, all those kinds of things. So, you know, what he's saying is you can't make distribution relations conform to what you would want. They have to conform to the economic structure of society. And so then he says, only when, and he lists these like really, like audacious, really, really audacious things. Only when we've done also not only a communist society, but we got this and that and the other thing and the fourth thing, then and only then. Can society inscribe on its banners from each according to his ability to each according to his need? So Marx is saying again, okay, this is your principle. You know, it's the principle of the whole socialist movement. You know, he doesn't say that explicitly, but the, the idea is, you know, these people he's writing to are aware of that principle. And he says, okay, we can't talk about that in abstraction from the material basis, the actual economic relations of production and, and forces of production. Okay, that's the basis that makes a certain distribution possible and therefore fair. It's not possible. You can't say we ought to do it. So first we need the, the lower phase of communism. Then we need all these additional, very audacious things. And then and only then can society inscribe on its batters from each according to their ability, each according to their need. Okay, so if you if you care about this, this is what you have to be struggling for, is the development of the entire society, you know, including its mode of production, okay, and not just yammer on about distribution. Okay, I think that's kind of like the full context of the discussion. Okay. But probably forgotten a few important things, and you might have a different take. I don't know. So then there's this question of like, okay, is 
that Bolando addresses in his thesis that this question is, is Marx advocating this principle? And is it a moral principle, like a normative principle, or is it just a description of, is he just kind of describing what would need to happen in order to meet this principle? I mean, my reference always in thinking about these passages and the critique is something that that Marxist humanists have written about for a long time, and that's including you've written a bunch of stuff on this, Andrew, the directly the question of directly social labor and how to create a society, communist society with directly social labor instead of the indirectly social labor of capitalism. And it seems like thinking about that question is always what is like on my mind when I'm reading these passages. Like I'm seeing it through the lens of this question is of like, what would you need to do to get rid of value, uh, money as it functions, like as a measure of value in a capital society. And that's that you would need to have these real changes of the mode of production. And that's like the main, the main like takeaway from this passage. And then Marx, in addition to that, he's, he's sort of showing that there are these, well, like, I guess, like you already sort of said that there are these inherent logical insufficiencies with lower stage of communism that are sort of inevitable. And that logically, if, if we wanted to resolve those those problems, we would need to address a whole other set of problems about the division of labor, the amount of wealth that the mode of production can produce, uh, the nature of the labor process, and whether it's something that people actually want to do or whether it's a burden, these kind of things that are not immediately addressed by the notion, the question of like how to get rid of value production and make labor directly social. So it seems to me like Marx these like things Mark's dealing with are not just like he has some some idealistic principle that he's for just for the sake of it, and he's trying to theorize how to get to it, but more like this is a a set of logical deductions based on like what's what are the essential problems with capitalist society? The labor is indirectly social, the value production, exploitation, etc. How do we get rid of those? Well, it's not just distribution; it's a change in the mode of production. Okay, this is how you would get rid of them logically, you know, you can just kind of deduce this is the problem. You have to get rid of these to, to solve these problems. Then you will be set, then you'll be faced with a new set of problems, infinitely smaller problems, uh, theoretically, but still problems that would then need to be resolved by some other further development of society. So it seems like he's almost sort of acknowledging that this slogan or this principle could have a real meaning in the context of this analysis of capitalism, and he's working working within that context. I mean, Bolando has this discussion of like, was Marx a moral thinker, a moral philosopher? You know, does he make moral judgments? There's a lot of confusion on that issue. I think, in the main, what has confused people is Marx denies that there are trans-historical standards of justice Mm. or fairness. And in particular, the Gotha program is a prime example of that. I think that people generalize trans-historical meaning common to all forms of society, common to all periods of history. You know, so it's universal. Marx says, no, that's not the case. Does that mean that he is not a moral thinker? No. Does that mean that he's got like some methodological strictures that he imposes on himself not to make moral statements? I, I don't see that, actually. I think 
what he says throughout is, you know, if you just talk about morality and abstraction from real historic possibility, it's just hot air. That's I think a lot of his project was to say to people, hey, you got to think about it. And and he does that in the critique of the Gotha program. But, you know, in terms of whether he's advocating it, I don't think he's explicitly advocating it. He's talking to people who presumably already are down with the principle. He's not saying, here, I want you to adopt this principle, and here's why. He doesn't do any of that. But he's saying, given that this is your principle, if you're going to be serious and realistic, here's the road we have to take, and here's what we got to tell the people and put it in our program, mm-hmm. and so forth and so on, and not a bunch of hot air about mm-hmm. just distribution. So what he's saying is, this is what's needed to make your principle real. I think that that's what he's doing. Now, the question is, does he subscribe to the principle? can't imagine that anybody can deny that he does because he's among the things he says are preconditions are things like, you know, an end to all divisions of labor. OK, he clearly, you know, elsewhere, like in capital, is like totally against, you know, this all kinds of divisions of labor and, and foresees you know, the overcoming of the divisions of labor. He says, as a precondition for the operation of this principle, higher phase of communism, labor has to become not just like something we do in order to live, but life's prime necessity or, you know, the foremost want, want to work, okay? What I think that gets into is a transformation of the the labor process, you know, and... He talks about that elsewhere. And like in Capital, he says, freedom begins only when labor imposed by external necessity ends and just the creative activity begins. And he says, the shortening of the working day is the main prerequisite for that. Okay. But he calls that the true realm of freedom. And I, and I think everybody should know that that's Marx was all about, you know, the expansion of human capacities and human freedom. So, I look at I look at the context of Marx's, you know, reference to this principle. It's right after he's talking about ending the division of labor, uh, labor becoming life's prime want. He's saying, you know, you need these other things that that I'm, you know, I'm on record, so to speak. I'm on record as being for. You need these things in order to realize that principle. So I find it really hard for me to imagine any kind of argument. He wasn't in favor of this. Marx is saying that in order to inscribe this principle on our, our banners, it's only going to be possible after certain conditions are satisfied. The division of labor needs to be abolished. Well, he doesn't mean that Both everyone mean does that. this. Everyone does the same job. I mean, you could have rotation. You could have uh, people doing several different things. Part of the time, do one. Part of the time, do the other. Part of the time, do the third. You could have sure. rotation. You could have, I mean, like Michael Albert, Robin Hanel. Postulated balanced job complexes. Yeah. So you don't rotate, strictly speaking. But, right. you know, I mean, I don't think it's feasible that like everybody in the society is going to be, you know, like an airline pilot, right. you know, or a surgeon right. or something. Right. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. you could have like an airline pilot also clean toilets and you can have a surgeon, you know, you know uh, whatever grunt work 
I can think of, right? right. There are lots of different right. things. Right? So, but just so I think because people get confused sometimes when they hear end of division of labor because you can't have a complex society without different people doing different tasks. Right. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, even in primitive societies, you have hunters and gatherers, you know, yet there's some division of tasks between different people. But the phrase here means like a laborer divided in such a way that there is like privileged classes of laborers. Excuse me. Right. Here's, here's, here's Marx's actual phrasing. In a higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving subordination of the individual to the division of labor, and with it also the antithesis between mental and physical labor has vanished. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's partly, you know, getting rid of the thing that some people do the thinking work and some people do the the doing work, the, the grunt work. Okay, mental and physical or mental and manual labor. But the phrase is interesting. The enslaving subordination of the individual to the division of labor. You can read that as there is going to be division of labor in the sense of various different tasks, but we're not going to subordinate individuals to that. Okay, in other words, we're not going to slot people into you do this for your whole life, and the other one does that for their whole life, and the other one does mm-hmm. the third thing for their whole life. Mm-hmm. I think that the most likely interpretation, subordination yeah. of the individual to the division of labor. Yeah. So you could say there's going to be a division of labor, but individuals are not going to be slotted into those fixed roles within yeah. the division of labor. So the other things needed in order to have a society where this principle is actualized would be dramatic increase in the productive abilities of societies. He says the productive forces, technology and, you know, human abilities, productive forces have also increased with the all-around development of the individual and all the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly. Okay, so wealth flowing more abundantly means greater production. The prerequisite is that the nature of work needs to be transformed such that work is something that is fulfilling for people, that it gives their life meaning rather than being a empty task, like a, a task that you have to do in order to put bread on the table. Right. Not only a means of life, but itself life's prime want. The thing that we want to do above all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Bolando and others dispute one thing you just said, which is that it would be an immense increase in, uh, you know, production or immense improvement okay, of yeah, technology, that that would be needed. That. happen to agree with you. You know, there's a reason why, mm-hmm. you know, in, in terms of the logic of what Mark is saying, but what he actually says is the productive forces have also increased and the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly. So you've outlined what I think are the prerequisites for this principle to be realized, but only some of them, because there are previous prerequisites, which is that we first need to have a communist society. So what does Marx say about that? Well, he says we have to talk about communist society just as it emerges from capitalist society. And he just ticks off in one sentence four things that totally distinguish the two societies. People don't get it, really, I think, because they don't know what the hell he's talking about. Okay, so he says, there won't be any exchange of products. 
And he says that uh, there's going to be collective ownership of means of production, be a cooperative production. And he says the thing that you just mentioned, that labor will no longer be indirectly social, but directly social. And because of that, the products won't be values. Okay, so won't be things of value anymore. So those are additional four conditions just to have a communist society. And by the way, all those four things that I just mentioned, all that kind of implies that it's a classless society, says that also a bit later. So you got no exchange of products, collective ownership, obviously not a class society, no value, uh, no value production and directly social labor. Okay, so you got those four conditions, and then the four conditions that you mentioned, you know, applicable to a higher phase of communist society, you know, and then and only then can society inscribe on its banners from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. But I think the question of why, why we need those preconditions for this higher stage of communism is important. It's not just like it's a list of desirable things that would be nice to have, uh, right? It's that if you actually want to have a society where people only, people contribute as much as they are able to, but they take from society as much as they need, that presupposes certain things. One, it means that they if, if there's no, if if your work is not being directly rewarded rewarded by your consumption, then there must be some other reason for working. So Marx doesn't spell this out, but I think it's you can see the logic there. You need to actually have a society in which people want to work because they see it as part of their um, who they are that they contribute to the social product. Along with that, you need that's that that's going to be the case. If that's the kind of work people are doing, then. You can't have some sort of um, division of labor that is um, uh, alienating for people. So you need to have a totally different division of labor. And if you're going to have a society that can allow people to take as much as they need um, without, you know, th- then you need to have, be able to produce enough stuff for people's, for everyone's needs, not just the needs of certain people, certain the capitalists or wealthy workers, whatever, you need to be able to produce enough stuff. So there's like a, the logic is fairly clear, at least as far as I can tell, why those things will be needed to realize this principle. I, I think this is important, and I want to go to words that Marx uses and stress that they need to be taken literally. And I think Bolando gets this exactly right. Okay, Marx's words are from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. So he's not just saying, you know, we have to take care of people's needs and, you know, people should contribute according to their abilities. You know, ask not what society can do for you, ask what you can do for society. It's not just some empty thing like this. Okay. What what it's about is people are contributing according to their ability, irrespective of what they are getting in return. And they are receiving according to their needs, irrespective of their contribution. And so Bolando says, like, the two parts of this principle are not directly linked. The second part, each according to his needs, is not formulated as if it followed from the first, and there's no explicit link between ability and need. All must must contribute according to their ability, and all must receive according to their needs, irrespective of how much they have contributed. Someone contributing nothing will still be entitled to receive... They contribute nothing because they're, he doesn't say this, but it's obviously clear from the formulation, someone contributing nothing who has no ability to contribute anything 
will be entitled to receive. So I think he gets that right. And I think this is hugely important because I think this is something that people often do not get. You know, we're so focused on providing for people's needs on the left, and that's all people kind of hear. But it's not just providing for needs. It's saying we provide for people's needs irrespective of their ability to contribute. There is not an obligation to do something like you don't have to work in order to receive, like what in the lower phase of communism. You don't have to produce value like in capitalism and you don't get rewarded because you produce more value or more products like under capitalism. You get what you need, okay, and you contribute what you're able. One thing is irrespective of the other thing. Once one understands that and takes it literally, what kind of a society would we have to have to make that possible where you can get irrespective of what you've contributed and people will want to contribute according to their ability irrespective of what they receive? Well, it's got to be a rather wealthy society where there's enough to go around and you don't have to ration according to, well, you know, let's see who's contributing and who's contributing more. And, you know, who's going to want to contribute according to their abilities if work sucks? You know, well, so you have to have work not suck anymore. The logic is just there that these are preconditions for that kind of distribution according to needs, irrespective of abilities and contribution of according to abilities without regard to what you're receiving in return. If you just like ask, what would you need to have this kind of a society? This is what you come up with. You throw out the word higher phase and lower phase, I think a couple of times in the discussion, probably a lot of people are familiar with the distinction, but here in the critique of the Gotha program, Marx is distinguishing between a lower phase in which this principle from each according to according to his ability, each according to his needs, is realized in this higher phase and a lower phase where this principle has not been realized yet. Mm-hmm. So in what sense can a society be called communist if it doesn't implement this principle? So you know, clearly this principle is not the essence of what makes something communist. It's something it's something that makes something uh, I don't know, more communist or the next the next level of communism, but it's not the first thing that's needed to have a communist society, right? And, and I, I think I think it's important because I think a lot of problems are caused by people not understanding really what Marx is saying and they look Their minds are focused on distribution, and Marx says, well, you know, hey, in terms of distribution, we still have bourgeois right operating in a certain sense. You contribute and you receive in accordance with your contribution. Of course, it's different in this society that he's talking about because you're contributing your labor to society, and society is giving you back an equal amount of labor after deductions. Contributions are not assessed in terms of value produced and the amount of products you produce. So I think it's just hugely important to see those four features of the society that are going to prevail, you know, just as it emerges out of capitalism. That is a fully communist society. There are no vestiges of capitalist relations of production anymore. There is not yet this breaking of the link between what you contribute and what you receive, but there's common ownership. There are no classes. There's no exchange of products. There's no production of value. The products don't have value. And, you know, labor is directly social. 
It's not indirectly social like under capitalism, meaning that, you know, if you work, that's a social contribution or it will be in communist society, not that you have to satisfy additional uh, criteria in order for your labor to count as a social contribution. In other words, you got to produce things that are things of value. You have to produce a sufficient amount of value. You got to, you know, produce a sufficient amount of products and so forth. Nothing. You know, if you work, that is your contribution to the society. It's an entirely different society that operates according to entirely different principles. Okay. So there's no vestige of, of capitalism left. Okay. It's just that there's a certain analogy between this and distribution under capitalism. And both societies have the distributional feature that there is a link between what you contribute and what you get back. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.